0: Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian.
1: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning.
2: Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
4: Previously on Car Stuff. No, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. Welcome to Car
2: Stuff everybody. I'm Ben Boland. And I'm Scott Benjamin. Ben, today we're gonna to have the second half of our Formula One podcast. I'm pretty excited. I am thrilled. Let's get right into it. Now we're talking about like engine building and you know maybe yeah. what you know what they can do with these things. Let's talk about the cost of the engines maybe just for a moment.
4: Oh we oh we have to put in that statistic too. Okay, so these these amazing engines, um now let's just to put this back into the Grand Prix uh Grand Prix phase, right? For some mm-hmm. context, we said that they were doing 700 plus per race, right? 700 plus miles. Yes. So um on average um while a Formula 1 engine these days will just smoke my Monte Carlo to the ground. <laughs> um I would say so. Yeah. Uh I'm secure in admitting that. It's true. Uh, the Formula One engine is not near as durable.
2: No, no, no. As a matter of fact, yeah, they uh, they have some strict rules about, um, you know, okay, you know what, I think we need to go back for just one second. That's what. yeah. Just one second, and I only want to say it because of the fuel. Um, I think we do need to talk about the fuel and, oh, and leading up to yeah. this, but, but, uh, the fuel mm-hmm. is basically the same type of fuel you can buy for, you know, you could buy out on the open market, really. Yeah, and the, uh, power boosting additives that you might be familiar with yeah. are not allowed. Yeah, and that is why, you know, you're talking about durability and, mm-hmm. and how long they, these things last. Um, the only reason I think we need to mention fuel right now yeah. is because in the early days, the fuel was so corrosive and so filled with additives like benzene and alcohol and, yeah. and you know, just other types of fuel like jet fuel really. Yeah. Um, extremely high octane. Uh, they would actually corrode the engine from within if you left it sitting in the engine for longer than just for the race or qualifying. So you, so you had to so break down the engine if you wanted to save it. Almost immediately. You had to break it almost immediately. Almost immediately yep. clean everything. And uh, you know, of course, there's some parts that are just sacrificial. You know, you just they, they have to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, to, in order to save that engine, which is a very expensive engine, as we'll find out after we talk about durability, um, it's developed to the point where they don't need to do that as much anymore because the fuel is is like I said, it's it's really surprisingly so, just about like what you would find in conventional automobile gasoline.
4: Now they have some. Non-hydrocarbon compounds they're allowed in, but they're very small qualities, and uh, you typically, if you go to a gas station, you will have a choice of three types of fuel. Yeah. These guys work with 50
2: different fuel blends, right? Fifty. Five zero fifty blends, and it's for track conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's for weather conditions. It's mm-hmm. for um, you know it, exactly the altitudes that they're at. They've yep. got uh, it's it's really incredible. I mean, we're talking humidity levels, things like that. Yeah, uh, fifty different blends of fuel. That to me would be a nightmare job, trying to figure out what blend of fuel to use at what race, on what day, you're watching the weather forecast, you're watching, you know, the barometric pressure, you're watching everything. Mm-hmm. Humidity levels, trying to figure out what fuel to use. And let's keep in mind that these are
4: only the 50 blends that have been submitted and approved by the FIA.
2: Yeah, that's right. So, God knows how many, uh, different blends were submitted. And, and you know that they're tested. So, you know, they're yeah. sampled and tested. The FIA tests them and make sure that you're not running into illegal fuel. And they use a lot of fuel, Ben. Great. They point. Use, uh, how many of them they use? Uh,
4: uh, one, for during a single season, one team would use, um, around 200,000 liters. And that's, uh, that's not with the best MPH. Uh Formula 1 car, one of the reasons you wouldn't want to make it a daily driver. It gets about 4 miles to the
2: gallon. Yeah. And for uh, you know, us US listeners here, uh, that equates to about 52,834 gallons of fuel in one season. Now, in their defense, Scott, that is also for testing. It's okay. not just for racing. Okay, Ben. Okay, now, now you mentioned durability, and I didn't mean to cut you off with this fuel thing, but the fuel plays so heavily in durability on these things. Right. Or it yeah. did. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's a little bit less of a factor, and, uh, and the FIA has made some adjustments for that, right? Yes, uh, we want the
4: one stat that I'm really excited about that I want to drop on us before we get to the, some more of the stuff about the engine here is that these engines need to be rebuilt
2: after about 500 miles on average. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's maybe two races, really. It's maybe. Maybe. I would think that it's probably every race. Really, I mean, yeah, cause the, I mean, that mile counter factors into testing. As However, well. when you're talking about engines, you, you, we're not saying it's a new engine. They can't just, you know, swap it out and put in a new one because there are also rules that tell you uh, that, that state how many Races the engine, the, uh, the teams are allowed to use per season and per groups. And uh, maybe I'm not saying it the right way. How many races these engines have to last is probably the best way.
4: Right. And I think the way the rule is written, um, is as you said, engines, new engines per season or
2: total yes. number of engines. So it's like you may be allowed one engine per two races, race mm-hmm. weekends. Uh, so race weekends, meaning that qualifying practice, all that, you know, has to be done on one engine for two race weekends. Now that doesn't seem like a whole lot. Um, but you know, when you consider that there are 19 races in the 2013 season, um, that means that the, the teams then are limited to like maybe say eight engines per season.
1: Mm-hmm. Now
2: eight engines, that's a lot. And you know, they, they have the same thing for gearboxes. So there's like each gearbox has to last for something like five consecutive races yeah so you know you need to rebuild that in order to make that work for five races and that's a lot of races really because you know they, they put up with a whole lot now eight engines Ben that's got to be expensive how expensive <laughs> is that Scott? I'll, I'll tell you how expensive this has been. <laughs> engines for the team overall about 50 percent of their entire operating budget is spent on engines alone and so you guys
4: are going to hear some numbers right now, and we want you to remember that that's half of the operating
2: cost and I want to tell you that the numbers that I have are from a long time ago these these numbers that uh, that popped up because I don't I haven't found any current uh, stats on this that are real concrete. so yeah,
4: it's it can be tough to find some of the current info. Uh, There's a little bit of secrecy so around
2: imagine this. this eight years ago, Ben. okay. this is from eight years ago. so yeah. it's not it's not new data really. I mm-hmm. mean, it's old data. When, uh, there was, let's see, the, the big series uh, players were Honda, Toyota, McLaren, McLaren, Mercedes, and Ferrari. Those four teams, each one of those teams spent approximately $200 million on engines alone in that year alone. And that's an average of 50% of their cost. That's 50% of their budget. So, um, for, yeah, exactly. And then a smaller team like Renault, you can, you can kind of break this down. Uh, they spent about 125 million that, that season mm-hmm. and Cosworth spent about 15 million dollars for that season just on engines. Now that's incredible. That, that's enough right there to bankrupt the smaller teams. Right. And you can tell
4: because, uh, the, Race-wide average in 2007 for the expense of an operating season mm-hmm. was around 120 million and that gives us a really good sense of how large the variation here yeah. is in cost. I mean, if you just look at Honda, um, at, over near the top and you look at Cosworth near the bottom, I mean, this is not something that you can do in your
2: garage. Okay, I just thought of something. Unless you're Jay Leno. Now, we mentioned Honda, Ferrari, you know, those, Ooh. those makers. I, the amounts that they're spending now. Now, we know that teams spend billions of dollars now. Yes. This was 2006. And, uh, you know, if that's 50% of their budget, that means that, you know, those giant teams, even like Ferrari, were spending about $400 million at that time on Formula One in that, in that year. You know, if you take that now to say that, you know, like there's, well, billions spent, you can extrapolate from that that they're spending you know 500 million six hundred million dollars mm-hmm. maybe maybe six or seven hundred million dollars on engines alone for for their their race series
4: and I would argue now a lot of people who are maybe not as big of a fan of F1 as you and I are Scott a lot of people might be saying what a waste of money what a boondoggle I object and I want to take a moment to defend Formula One by saying <laughs> oh look I'd
2: like to hear this Scott.
4: Okay. Yeah. Here's why. Because this is not just some sort of promotional thing for Ferrari. You know, they're not just blowing 700 million, um, for fun. No. For poops and giggles. If I want to keep it clean for the radio. I think you should. But, (laughs) but what they are doing, um, what they are doing is driving innovation and research. If you think about it, behind the whole, um, consumer pleasing and fan pleasing stuff about the race, they're making some Leaps and bounds in terms of research for their future vehicles. You know
2: what's cool about a team like you know Ferrari or McLaren or anything mm-hmm. like that because you know they they also make you know like world supercars also. Yeah, something that is developed in Formula One can go almost immediately into their you know their supercars and they're very very high end cars. And their customers benefit from it, you know, that season or, mm-hmm. you know, just after that season. So, um, you know, the the rest of us, you know, that we have to wait for it to trickle down to our, uh, you know, our Honda or our, our Toyota or whatever <laughs> um, in some form. Ferrari users may be able to benefit from something immediately, like let's say paddle shifters, yeah. which is one thing that you know just quickly comes to mind. Paddle shifters and paddle shifters are
4: on a steering wheel, and it's a way to shift gears without having to tip rely on the typical foot operation. Yeah, well,
2: without having to uh, remove one hand from the wheel in order to shift mm-hmm. as well. Because you know, looking back at that, you know, the Grand Prix uh, images and even you know Formula One images from uh, you know as late as the well nineteen nineties even. Um, anything prior to that, you know, you're seeing people that, you know, have to let go of the wheel with one hand and reach down into the, the, the side pocket and shift and then put their hand back up on yeah, the wheel. Yeah.
4: And, and you're right. The, the primary advantage there is keeping the hands on the wheel. Can Sorry. I, I can misspoke.
2: I, one more quick sidebar. Yeah. Fast, I promise. Because we, we're getting near the end here. That footage I was telling you about, Juan Manuel Fangio driving around in Italy. You know, they've got this camera obviously strapped to the front of the car facing back at him driving. As he leaves the pits, and I have no idea how fast he's going, I'm assuming extremely fast, um, He's he, he takes his hands, both of them, off of the wheel as he's at speed. You know, he's going straight, of course. Both hands off the wheel, adjusts his goggles, fits the helmet mm-hmm. on a little bit tighter, hands back on the wheel. You would never, ever, ever see that in... Current competition, and well, I,
4: I just struck me as so odd. Let's talk about first. Uh, I hate to say it, we have gone this far without mentioning the average speeds, Scott. Oh, okay. What What are the
2: average speeds? Ah, uh, well, I don't know about average speeds. You, okay. have, you have average speeds information. I, I've got. Um, I uh, want to hear the some of the. I've got some. I've got a, a, a speed stat that may uh, may really shock you. There we go. How about that? That's exactly. Um, how right. about a zero to sixty time, Ben? Which. Really, I don't know. I mean, I guess it has a lot to do with the sport because they they do race from a standing start. They don't have mm-hmm. like a, a flying start like a lot of other series do. Um, zero to 60 time for, for a good launch, right around two seconds, Ben. Two seconds, zero to 60. Now, now, ponder that for just a moment because, you know, the times that are quoted are somewhere around 2.1 to 2.5. That's kind of common. Um, but times as low as 1.6, zero to wow. 60 have been recorded. Now, that's like extremely fast motorcycle fast you know like uh even you know drag car type fast Mm -hmm. um and that's but the problem is the you know the two seconds is with no launch control or no traction control rather and uh you know due to the fact that you know traction control is one of the outlawed or one of the banned things recently um that's one of the things that you don't really see but you know two seconds that's still incredibly quick um and they say that better times or better speeds are even possible
1: Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com.
4: Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.
2: Uh, so, you know, watch for some advancements in that. I think I think yeah. that may come back.
4: I think with the especially with the addition of turbos. Yeah. Now that turbos are no longer pariahs. Did, did you have
2: more to say about speed? Because I think I've got a little bit I can I can add to this. But we've we've talked about you know Formula E and its top speed and you know mm-hmm. I wasn't too impressed with that. Yeah. Well, the top uh Formula One speed ever recorded was done on like at the private test track or something, and it was like two hundred and sixty-eight miles an hour or something crazy mm-hmm. like that. That's mm-hmm. amazing. And you know during the race, you know you're you're. The the way the courses are set up, they don't really go flat out for a long, long period of time like you would on an oval or, you know, high speed oval or any of the you know, the big super tracks like we see here in the States a lot, uh where NASCAR and IndyCar race. Uh but, you know, the the nature of the beast is, you know, they have a long straightaway usually at some point in this where they right. do achieve the top speed and it's really quick. Uh, they get up to, you know, like the 220 mark, something like that. Or, you know, some may be as low as 180, which is still ridiculously fast because, you know, you gotta make a hard right turn at the end of that. Mm, that's
4: what, that's what I was waiting for because I think that's the, that's one of the important parts to remember here is that the, the difference between 268 miles per hour and 180 or 220, uh, may befuddle some people, but it just underscores that it underscores the, nature of F1, which is that the governing body puts restrictions on the, um, on the competitors. I mean, normally it seems weird to think, wow, they're not racing
2: and they got 268, but. Make no mistake, these are fast, yeah. fast, fast cars. They're the top of their game, really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if they were allowed to race on an oval, a high-speed oval... Right, where well, they mean, had
4: those two big straightaways... Th- yeah, yeah
2: and, and turns that you can pretty much go full throttle all the way through. Yeah. Uh, that's completely different than the courses that, you know, these Formula One racers drive on. I mean, if you look at, if you look at any Formula One track try to imagine any place in that track that you're going to be able to get the car up to 200 miles an hour and uh you'll be astounded. without
4: without wrecking
2: and you'll be astounded that they do cuz these guys have incredible control it's Ooh. really uh it's really a uh, it's a driver's sport yes and uh i want to
4: talk about just a couple more things i I'm so excited about this, Scott, that I feel like we're gonna run out of time without everything we want. You know,
2: I, we, it always happens and maybe it'll show up, you know, in a nuts and bolts thing because, yeah. can I, one, maybe we should just mention things fast so that we get them out there and we know, like people can see that we know about them, we're acknowledging Excellent. them. yeah. How about oh. like the care system? Okay, yes, you'll talk about the care system. We'll, we'll trade this off, um,
4: without any need for order. You're just gonna hear some quick, fast, Scott and Ben facts.
2: Sounds good. Okay, care system. Oh, you wanna go with me first? Okay, yeah. alright, care system. There are three types. There's the battery type, there's the flywheel type, there's the hydraulic type. Uh, however, you're only gonna hear about the battery type because so far, you know, it's not compulsory that they, that they have the system initially. Um, it's just that the teams that have opted to use the care system, every single one of them has used the battery type and what is the care system ah uh, the care system is a uh, is like a uh, it's a kinetic energy recovery system so it's like um, regenerative braking almost and mm-hmm. that you know you build up energy and you store it, and then the driver can release it with a push of a button on the steering wheel on that incredible steering wheel right and uh, just to recap as you said of the three that are there, only the
4: battery has been used let 's talk about the wings for a second, very good now those are some of my favorite things when we ca- talk about the bodies of these cars uh. The wings first appeared in the 1960s. So they operate like airplane wings, but in reverse. So airplane wings create lift, but wings on a Formula One car produce downforce. This holds the car onto the track. And this gets kind of tricky because these cars have to be built with a monocoque design to withstand tremendous downforce.
2: Ah, that is going to tie into something that I saw later on. We're going to have just a real brief Stuff Scout season. That's uh, the monocoque design is going to tie into that. Um, there's no pace car in the series uh, there's there's what they call a safety car and uh, instead and that's used for caution periods but like I said, they do a standing start. Uh, you'll see that and that's a very dramatic moment by the way when uh, they're all lined up on the grid and then the lights drop and it's amazing. It's really cool to watch and uh, sometimes there's a little bit of chaos that goes on there uh, but Mercedes Benz has been supplying the safety car since 1996 and the current model is an SLS AMG. Uh, 6.3 liter V8, which has 571 horsepower. It's a it's an incredible car. So that car itself is pretty mean. It's huh? it, it's awesome. really mean. Yeah, it's a great car. It would be fun to drive. Okay, so let's go
4: to the steering wheel. Uh, I want people to check out how Formula One works. An article in HowStuffWorks.com by William Harris, I think, uh, it has an excellent uh, diagram of the Formula One steering wheel. This thing is huge, Scott. It doesn't just have paddle shifters. Mm-hmm. It has. Everything. Um, I'm just going to name some of the stuff you'll see. You'll see a display. You'll see a speed limiter, radio, driver drinking pump, um, multifunction dials, traction control when it was allowed, uh, oil pump, fuel hatch, uh, gear shift, clutch paddle, um, there, there's so much here that it reminds me of one of the, when video game controllers started becoming bigger and
2: bigger. Yeah, Remember overly,
4: that? overly complex. It's overly complex. You can't just hop in these things.
2: That's the <laughs> point we're trying to make. But the thing is, those are refined down to just what they need. And look how complicated that is. So that tells you something right there, how difficult it is to drive these cars. Because they're loaded with electronics and, and mm-hmm. technology. These things are, are re- basically rolling test beds for any manufacturer that's in the series. And that's, that's exactly right. what the to use it for and that's why they have no problem spending a billion dollars a year on these rolling test beds because they get so much out of it.
4: And here's the thing. Uh, it does have to be simplified. Uh, the rules state that a driver has to be able to get out of the car within five seconds, and you can only remove the steering wheel. That's the only thing you can remove in that five seconds. So to allow for this, the steering wheel is joined with a snap-on connector.
2: I will tell you about that in a moment. I promise. That's okay. one of the things. All right, so uh, two things that the series no longer has that I would like to tell you. Oh, great. in yeah. uh, the, And the quick, they have uh, no tire war. Um, so there's no, you know, dual suppliers for tires. Pirelli is the sole provider for the series right now, and I think Bridgestone was in the past. And, you know, they not not sole provider, but uh, it was a back and forth between them, mm-hmm. like who had the better tire. And, you know, there's no tire war in that series. Uh, Pirelli is the only game. And they're super soft tires. Uh, very, very soft. Yeah, that's right. And they're preheated in the pits so that they're ready to go when they leave. Uh, there's no refueling during the race, and that's something that's uh, relatively new since 2010. However, refueling was only allowed uh between 1994 and 2010 and they uh they've completely removed it so during the race Mm -hmm. you're no longer allowed to add or remove fuel then now some (laughs) that's that's important because there must have been some fuel removing going on at some point for them to add that because uh you know that may be a strategy a weight strategy for some team right great and that dovetails perfectly because let's talk about weight weight
4: is huge here there now formula one if you haven't gotten the sense of it yet. Let's just say this explicitly. Formula One literally has a rule about everything. And when somebody figures out a way around the rule, then boom, there's another rule. And that's part of the game. That's how it should be played. But there is, of course, a rule for the total weight of a vehicle, counting
2: the driver and not counting the driver. So... There's ballast weight too, right? Ballast weight that they can move around, um, you know, on their own. They decide when, you know, where to use it, but they mm. have to use the the exact amount because the car with driver has to weigh a certain amount. And I think that that has been up this year. I've got a note on it somewhere, and I'll have to dig it up. But uh, it's been increased by like, um, I think it's by like two kilograms, and that's mm. because of the Pirelli tires. Uh, they said that the tires weigh just a little bit more. They're going to, they made an allowance for it in this case. Okay. So uh the ballast weight then is, you know, comes into, you know, play even more. And things like the care system that we talked about, mm-hmm. uh, that weighs, I think, 35 kilograms. So, you know, the teams that opt for that, they carry 35 kilograms of, of CARES and less ballast weight. Mm-hmm. And the other teams carry more ballast weight. So everybody is equal in weight. So yeah, because
4: uh th- this also comes into um, some of the material science. Uh the body of the Formula One is made of a lot of carbon fiber, uh dual compounds, maybe over an aluminum mesh. Um, and this is to this is to Fight for the all-powerful weight to power ratio, which you and I talk about frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. one thing, uh, Formula One teams each have two drivers. They do not just have one driver. And these drivers are not necessarily BFFs. Hmm. Because, uh, Formula One drivers out to beat his rivals, including the driver
2: on the team. So this, um, uh there's been some controversy in the past, I know. In yeah, exactly. uh, in one you know, one teammate allowing the other one or allowing the other one to win mm-hmm. or allowing the other one to block for him or her. Yeah. Well or her, I guess, in some cases. Yeah, and that's technically against the rules, but it's tough to enforce that. That's true, because it's tough it's really difficult to determine whether or not someone is blocking or just uh being aggressive or you know, defending their position. Mm-hmm.
1: Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without painful finger sticks. So you can always know which way your glucose is headed. An arrow shows you where you're heading, up, down, or steady. It can also alert you before you go too low or when you're going too high. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM available, you can make better diabetes decisions about food, medication, and activity in the moment. And all those little decisions can lead to big results. Results you can see like more time and range in lower A1C. With Dexcom G7, you can manage your diabetes with confidence. Get started with the number one recommended CGM brand by doctors and patients at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com.
4: Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions for a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. And we're back and Scott, you're killing me because this has been a two part podcast and I respect your wishes about keeping this Stuff Scott Sees secret, but you got to
2: tell me. It's time to let it out of the bag, right?
4: <laughs> All
2: right, so here's what I've got. The other day on the way to work, this ties perfectly into our F1 podcast, and I can't believe this. This just works out this way a lot of times. This is two days ago. I saw this on the road here in Buckhead, Georgia. Um, driving through traffic. Immediately to my right, a car zips past me in traffic, you know, heavy, heavy traffic, you know, in the morning in downtown Atlanta. Car I'd never seen on the road before, something unique, something that I, I, another one that I didn't think I would ever see. And I had to identify it when I got to work based on what I saw. I tried to remember certain characteristics. I couldn't even figure out what it was really at first. It was a gray car, a supercar. Okay. Um, It was a McLaren MP412C. In Atlanta? In Atlanta. And uh, this made me think of it because you know we're doing this F1 podcast. We've been researching already, mm-hmm. and uh, I know that there's so much Formula One technology that's built into this this McLaren. Yeah. And this was just like one of those moments where like I can't believe I'm seeing this right now. First one I've ever seen on the road, and I see it two days before we're recording this podcast on uh, on Formula One. Mm-hmm. So what a great tie-in, right? Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing car. I mean, it's it's like it's got a lot of F1 style to it. Um, but it does have this uh, carbon, uh, this this carbon monocoque design to it. It's called oh. the carbon monocell, yeah. and uh, I found out something interesting looking it up. It's manufactured in Austria, and um, the, this monocell thing, the production, I mean, it, that's where everything starts. It's like a it's like a tub that the driver sits in, and then everything else is built around that tub. That's like the safety. Part of this thing, and that mm-hmm. comes directly from Formula One racing. And uh, other cars have used this. Now, the first, you know, the McLaren F1, the one that you know Jay Leno has, and you know you see mm-hmm. a lot of uh, big name celebrities own sure. this car. It's a million dollar car. Uh, the the same type of cell that they used in this thing, similar, took about three thousand hours just to complete the cell, just to build that cell. Wow, I know it's a shocking number. I mean, it's a it's a, it's it's a carbon fiber tub again. Mm-hmm. Um, now the Mercedes Benz SLR, the, the McLaren version, uh, they they took that down to five hundred hours through advancements, and uh, now for this uh, McLaren MP4 12C that I saw, yeah, four hours, four hours. They cut it down from three thousand hours of of production time to build this just the tub part, not the car. Yeah, the tub part. Three thousand hours. They took it down to four hours in the uh, in the the MP4-12C. That's astonishing. Now it's an expensive car. It's about it's about a quarter of a million dollars. That's what a base sure. price. That's base price. Sure. Um, but it's like a 600 horsepower, seven-speed again supercar. So it's an. I, I thought it was a, a cool thing to see. Now before we get to that last stat, I want to do one
4: thing here. Um, I want to read to you a tweet that our buddy Tom Holland asked us. Okay. Okay, so Tom asked us, why are women not competing in F1
2: when they're in GP2 and the Renault formula? Is it strength or durability? Ah, uh, good question. We've got a, a pretty concise answer for you here, really. I mean, I, I think. I mean, it, it, women are coming back into the sport, really. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that in, you mentioned that there's not just one driver there's also backup drivers right. development drivers mm-hmm. which test for the team because you know the teams are out on the road all the time right mm-hmm. and uh, there are some current drivers There's there's some women development drivers uh, one of them is susie wolf and then there's also maria dela uh de vilota or mm-hmm. Viota, maybe um but one of them uh is a williams uh, development driver that's Susie and uh maria she's a test driver for uh, i think it's Marusia or Mar- marussia it's mm-hmm. another team i'm not sure how you pronounce it It looks like marussia um <laughs> but there have been formula one drivers in the past uh formula one women drivers and um now the the controversy here comes up in very recent months when uh sterling moss <laughs> he's uh again here's the guy's 83 years old he's a driving legend um he's you know he's he won a lot of races. No championships, though. I was surprised to hear that Sterling Moss never had a championship, but he had, he had 16 Grand Prix wins. Now, recently, he, he infamously said that uh, women have the strength, but not the mental aptitude to race hard wheel to wheel. That is his direct quote. Now, that, you know, provoked a lot of people into, that's a, yeah, controversial statement. I mean, I disagree. I I also disagree. I think that's not not correct. Now, I mean, this is a guy that raced from like fifty one to sixty one, so he's you know yeah. old school again. Mm-hmm. Just kind of speaks what he, he speaks his mind when he's out there, says whatever he feels like saying. Uh, maybe not the most politically correct thing the thing to say, but um, you know he also was in the series when there were there were or there was at least one other female driver um, in the nineteen fifties, late nineteen fifties. There was a driver named Maria Teresa de. Uh, Philippus. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had, she entered five times, had three starts, uh, but didn't get any points in the series. Uh, in the 70s, there was um, uh, Lella Lombardi, and she actually had 17 entries and 12 starts, and she earned a half a point. Now, that's important because that's the only point that's ever been won by a woman in F1 driving. Mm-hmm. Um, out of the five that I'll mention here, there was also a Divinia uh, Galicia? And Desiree Wilson and Giovanni Amati. And, uh, you know, they're tough names to pronounce, obviously. I, I didn't do well with them. I commend but, uh, your effort. But that spans from the late 50s up until the early 1990s. And, you know, I mean, we've got, so the five women that have mm-hmm. entered at least one race, only two have ever qualified to start in a race, you know, that have qualified for it. And only one of them has ever scored a, an official point in Formula One, which is kind of, it's a big deal, really. And then in 1976, there was an F-1 race where there were two women entered. So they're there. Yeah, to
4: answer your question, Tom, there are female drivers and have been female drivers in F-1. Uh, there haven't been as many as men, clearly. Yeah. Oh, Scott. Oh, brother. We, uh, we have a lot of stuff. Here we are. Uh, this is a long podcast and we still have some things we need to talk about before we get out of you know, here. I
2: know that we're going to walk out with extra things on our notepads here that we never even covered.
4: But we do have one big world record that we've been teasing this whole episode and I think it's time to reward our listeners and let them know what it is. Yeah.
2: And I'll do it kind of quick here and in, you know, good fashion here as you'll see because, um, now it, it's all about pit stops. Okay. And okay. there is a new world record pit stop in Formula One, by the way. Um, now, formerly these things were kind of chaotic, yeah, uh, and and famously fast already. Exactly, famously fast. You're right; they're very choreographed. You know, they're they're what we call like millimeter precise events right now, right? That's a great way to I say mean, it. I mean, they're they're very very precise now. You now, pre 1994, remember there was no refueling, and then it was banned again in 2010. So that you know that led to longer pit stops, and that they still had to add this fuel, and it was something crazy. It was like 12 liters per second or something they could get in there so it was really fast mm-hmm. but now um, as of the 2010 season pit stops are really restricted to um, you know minor repairs under the car yeah and, uh, and tires, uh, because they don't do any refueling during the race. So, uh, pit stops, if you want to just get a quick thing, like the time to, uh, you mentioned the steering wheel before, and I, right. I told you I was going to tell you, it takes two seconds to replace the steering wheel. That means that, a, that a, someone leans in, removes one, puts one on, two seconds. That's really quick. Uh, to change a tire, about three seconds. Now that's not true anymore, as I'll tell you in just a moment. Uh, replace the nose of the car, the entire front of the car it takes about eleven seconds. But wow. this this new record that I'm going to tell you about, Ben, this is incredible, and you this is something you have to see to believe. You really do. Okay. Um, you have to look this up because you, you I can describe it, you won't even get it until is you see it. this the
4: world record for fastest pit stop? This in is, F1?
2: and it happened in 2013 at the Malaysian Grand Prix, um, and this is the Infinity Red Bull Racing team four tires the fastest ever pit stop you know all four tires on and off 2.5 seconds what no, no I'm sorry 2.05 seconds so we're talking like almost exactly 2 seconds now now ponder that in your mind for just a moment and that comes from the car Ooh. telemetry which says the car's at a dead stop the car's moving so it's not like you know someone with an inaccurate stopwatch in the pit sure. stop saying in the pit area saying you know it's about 2 seconds it's 2.0 Zero five seconds for the pit stop. So robots. Yeah, that's that, nope. nope, nope <laughs> that's that's a that's an incredibly precise team. Now the previous record was two point three one seconds. Um, it was held by the McLaren team. Now that's incredibly quick as well, of course. Mm-hmm. And to visually see this, you know, it's not a whole lot different. But um in fact, during this race, the Red Bull Racing team says they broke that record five times. During this race that we're talking about, where they actually broke the world record. And in fact, the slowest pit stop for the team on that day was faster than the previous record. Wow. So if you watch this thing, I swear to you, it's like you're in a, like imagine if you're in a parking lot and you do come to a complete stop. Uh, You know, a lot of people roll through, but let's say you come, you're in a parking lot and you come to a complete stop and then you look and you go. That's how fast this entire pit stuff is and that's four tires on and off and that's like I mean I'm looking at the picture here, it's like it's like fifteen or sixteen guys over the wall or mm. you know, out in the pit. Yeah. It's incredibly fast. You've got it you've literally gotta see it to believe it. And
4: speaking of seeing it to believe it, you can check it out, right? On YouTube maybe? Oh
2: yeah, anywhere on YouTube you can find yeah. that. And if yeah, I mean Just search world's fastest pit stop. Don't look at the McLaren one because, you know, that's the previous record. Look for the Red Bull uh, 2013. Exactly. And you'll find it.
4: And so we hope that you guys have enjoyed our, uh, fanboy podcast on F1 racing. Uh, please let us know what you think. You can find us on Twitter. You can drop us a line on Facebook. You can also send us an email at
2: carstuff at (music) discovery.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com.
0: What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here.
1: And I'm Austin Hankwitz.
0: We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks.